Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and it is October the 3rd, and we are listening to the second half of Joe Rogan and Edward Snowden. Daniel Hale, uh, who revealed uh, government abuses related to the drone program, or Terry Albury, who uh, revealed uh, problems with uh, racial policies in the FBI, how they were being abused. Um, When these guys are on trial, all of that stuff is forbidden from being spoken. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg's lawyer uh, asked Daniel Ellsberg, why did you do it? In court, in open court. Under oath, you know, why did you publish or provide to journalists the Pentagon Papers? And the prosecutor said, objection, objection, he can't say that. And the judge said, sustained, fine, he can't say it. And his attorney looked at the judge like he was crazy and said, I've never heard of a trial where the jury is not allowed to hear why uh, a defendant did what they did. And the judge said, well, you're seeing one now. And this is why the pardon power exists. Well, that's what's so creepy about something like the Espionage Act. If, if you can't even establish a motive, you can't even explain that you are doing this for the American people, that there's a real precedent that should be set for, for this kind of thing, especially in regards to what you're being charged with, which has now been determined that you were exposing something that was, in fact, illegal. And this is, it's, it's, it's an incredibly believe, right? un-American thing. It's, it's very un-American. It really is. But, but this is it's, it's disturbingly so. I, I mean, we see these kind of injustices happening in the United States every day. And it's not about the Espionage Act specifically. I mean, you see it with drug charges. You see it with civil forfeiture, uh, asset forfeiture, where, like, you know, they take yes. an old lady's car because her nephew was selling weed or something like that. Uh, and there's no way for her to get it back. Um, whether we're talking civil, whether we're talking federal, whether we're talking, um, or, sorry, civil or criminal, whether we're talking federal or state, uh, we see where the system of laws in the United States is letting people down constantly. Uh, but the question becomes, how do we fix this? How does that get addressed? And, you know, you can mount a national campaign, you can try to change the law, but as we talked about uh, before, unless you're, unless you're Jeff Bezos, unless you're Bill Gates, that's very difficult to do. But the governor can pardon people for state crimes, the president can pardon people for federal crimes, but we have not developed a compassionate culture that actually looks at this. Like, uh, every president has abused their pardon power, or their pardon authority to sort of let their cronies off the hook. We've seen it under this president, we've seen it under previous presidents. Sure. Um, But it is very difficult to establish uh, an understanding among average people uh, that it's actually okay for presidents to use this power more liberally uh, when particularly we're talking about nonviolent offenses, when we're talking about things uh, that that have not, you know, uh, they're they're not that controversial. But they are being controversialized because of the political atmosphere of partisanship where everything has to be criticized for political advantage from one side or the other. Everything's become a football. Well, particularly in your case when you're talking about polls that show 90% of people support you being pardoned and this recent ruling that what you exposed was illegal. 
I wonder how much the president actually knows about your case. Uh, you know, because... Yeah, yeah. It's a good question. It's, I mean, he's famous for barely paying attention in briefings and... You know, I mean, I just, I can't imagine that in 2013, this was fully on his radar, where he investigated it and read all the documents and really got deep into it. I, I can't imagine he really knows everything that went down. I bet he hasn't seen Citizen Four. I mean, I bet <laughs> sure. I, I, I really, you know just what I mean? Call I mean, I just, I bet, <laughs> uh, listen, if I had his number, I really would. Um, and I, I do know people who know him, and I am going to communicate that uh, after this conversation. I think that would be, I literally think that would win him a tremendous amount of political favor. I really do. I think particularly at this point in time where people are really, look, if there's ever a time where people are fed up about the overreaching power of government, it's during this pandemic lockdown. You know, for good or for bad, whether it's incorrect or incorrect, people are very frustrated right now with power. They're very frustrated right now with uh, the draconian measures that some states have put in place to keep people from working and, and their eyes keep people safe. And th all this would contribute to the motivation to, uh, to, to pardon you, because I think that it would show people that the president actually does agree that there have been some overreaches and in your case not just an overreach but a, a miscarriage of justice a disgusting un-american overreach mm -hmm. i think uh, when you ask this question about like how much does he know about the case uh, it's it's fair to say not a lot because he's intentionally being misadvised uh, by his advisors mm. uh, you've had the attorney general william barr who says he would be you know vehemently opposed to a pardon for me uh, his Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has literally, uh, I, I think, said I should be killed. John Bolton, at least, said I should be killed. What? Um, and, you know, I, I think when this conversation first came up a couple That's weeks disgusting. ago, Mike Pompeo probably had, hid every pen in the White House uh, because he's trying to make sure things like this don't happen. I think there are a lot of people uh, who try and control the president. Mm. But this whole question about, you know... Uh, what's right for me, uh, what's right for the president in terms of political advantage is, is the wrong question. This is why I haven't been advocating for pardon. I didn't ask for uh, a pardon from Obama. Um, I did ask for a pardon for Chelsea Manning, uh, which we didn't get, but we did get clemency, uh, and that's an important thing. Mm. Uh, because what we need is we need for pardons to be made not as a question of political advantage, uh, but as a decision taken on uh, to further the public interest. And this is why I say, pardon, you know, all of these previous whistleblowers, uh, uh, Thomas Drake, John Kiriakou, Terry Albury, Reality Winner, Daniel Hale. There are many names. Daniel Ellsberg, right? He wasn't convicted, so he got out. But these people deserve recognition as the patriots who stood up and took a risk for the rest of us uh, that they are. Look at the, the current cases, right, that don't even require an exercise of the pardon authority. Uh, but Julian Assange, right now, today, is in court in the UK fighting an extradition trial to the United States. For those who don't remember, this is the guy who's the head of WikiLeaks, right? Uh, and he really fell out of favor in 2016 because uh, he published the Hillary emails and everything like that, or Podesta emails. Um, but he's not being charged for that. Uh, the extradition trial has nothing to do with that. 
Actually, the U.S. government, uh, under William Barr, right, the current attorney general, is trying to extradite this guy and put him in prison for the rest of his life for the best work that WikiLeaks ever did, that has won awards in every country basically around the planet, including the United States, uh, which is the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs, right, uh, detainee uh, records in Guantanamo Bay, uh, things that are about explicit war crimes and abuses of power, uh, torture and people who were killed who shouldn't have been killed, uh, violations of the use of force protocols and all of these things, right? Uh, and this could all be made to go away if William Barr, the Attorney General, simply dropped the charges. And he should. Yes, he should. Why isn't he? Well, isn't well he? Julian Assange has literally been tortured. I mean, the guy was locked in that embassy yes. for how many years with no exposure to daylight, just completely trapped. And you've seen videos of him skateboarding around the, the embassy. I mean, it looks like he's going crazy in there. And now he's in jail and on trial. Uh, the, the whole thing is, it's so disturbing because, what, you know, when it, when it boils down to, like, what, what did he do that is illegal? What did he do that people disagree with that people the united states disagree with in terms of the citizens well he he exposed horrific crimes he exposed things that were deeply uh, that that the united states citizens are deeply opposed to and the fact that that is something that you in this country can be uh, prosecuted for, that they would try to extradite you and, and drag you from another country. They, they'd kick him out of the embassy and bring him back to the United States to try him for that. It seems like we're talking about some kangaroo court. It seems like we're talking about some some dictatorship where you know you have these uh, no protection to freedom of speech, no protection of, under the First Amendment, no no protection under the, the rights of the press. It's just... It's so disturbing that there are workarounds for our Constitution and our Bill of Rights that are with that we all just agree to, just accept that this is happening. There's no riots in the streets for this. There's no no one's up in arms that they're trying to extradite Julian Assange. No 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 one. I mean, it's not in the news. Like for whatever reason. The mainstream news has barely covered it right. over this uh, the, his current court proceedings in the in the UK. Well, I, I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that uh, they see Julian Assange. Uh, by this day, I mean the, 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 a lot of the mainstream media, the broadcast outlets, as a partisan figure. Now, and it's really sad because the most dangerous thing about the charges against Julian Assange uh, is if they extradite Julian Assange, if Julian Assange is convicted. He's charged under the Espionage Act, the same act that I'm charged under, the same thing that all these whistleblowers are charged under. But he is not a source. The way as abusive as these Espionage Act charges uh, have run in the last 50 years uh, is the government had sort of a quiet agreement. They never charged the press outlets. They never charged the New York Times. They never charged the Washington Post. Uh, they don't charge the journalists. They charge their sources. Uh, they charge the Chelsea Mannings, right? They, they charge the Edward Snowdens. They charge the Thomas Drakes, the Daniel Ellsbergs. But the press, they're left alone. They are breaking that agreement with the Julian Assange case. Uh, Assange is not the source. He is merely a publisher. He runs a press organization. People are like, oh, Julian Assange is not a journalist. He's not whatever. There is no way you can make that argument in court 
in a way that will be defensible, particularly given what we've talked about with the government and how careful they are to avoid prior uh, court precedents and to work around it and create, you know, obscure legal theories uh, that are legal fictions. Everyone knows they're a lie. Everyone knows these theories are false. But under the law, you know, they bend just enough that they can pass the argument through and get the conviction that they want. You cannot convict Julian Assange, the chief editor and publisher of WikiLeaks, uh, under the Espionage Act, without exposing the New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS, ABC, exactly. NBC, you know, CNN, Fox, whoever, exactly. uh, to the same kind of charges under this president and every coming president. And I think people don't think about that. Yeah. That that is disturbing. You know, another thing that's disturbing, well, there's many things that are disturbing about this case, but another thing that's been disturbing was he was a guy who the left supported up until 2016, and then it became inconvenient, <laughs> yeah, right? When he was I mean, dragging Bush, people, it was great. Then when he's dragging yes. you know, Clinton, it's not so great. Yeah. Right, right. When, when the, the footage was revealed from the, uh, I, I believe it was a helicopter that showed yeah. it was... Uh, Collateral murder. Right. Remember that video that was collateral put out in Iraq. Yeah, uh, it was a they, Apache helicopter in Iraq firing on two Reuters journalists. Uh, yes, embedded yes. With, like, local Hillary, or something. Hillary, Hillary. Yes, exactly. Hillary. Um, th- that was the left's. He was the darling of the left. I mean, they were all free Julian Assange, and it's just, it's so interesting how that narrative can shift so, so completely. Quickly. To all of a sudden, he's a puppet of Russia. Mm -hmm. And that's what it became in 2016. And that propaganda stuck. And people who were pro-Julian Assange before, now all of a sudden, I've I've seen these people say, fuck WikiLeaks, you know, and fuck Julian Assange. Like, that guy, he's a puppet of Russia. I'm like, like, how much have you looked into this? It's amazing how that kind of propaganda, when you just get the surface veneer of the, the, the... whatever the narrative there that is they're, they're trying to push how well it spreads that all these people who were these educated left-wing people now all of a sudden were anti-wikileaks and i'm like do you not remember how this whole thing got started it was the iraq war which we all opposed do you not remember this whole bullshit lie about the weapons of mass destruction that got us oh, into this yeah, crazy war and then exactly. julian assange and wikileaks exposed so much of this and yet here we are in 2016 it turns up on its head and now he's a puppet of russia and, and wikileaks is bad because inconveniently the information that he released damaged hillary clinton's campaign yeah i, I think a lot of it comes down to people forgetting uh, what principles are and why they're important, yes. right? Um, it's really sad. You can hate I, I, Julian I just, Assange. You can I, think Julian Assange is puppet of Russia. You can think he's the worst person on earth, right? He's a reincarnation of Hitler or Stalin or whatever. And still realize that convicting him <clears throat> harms you. It harms your society. Yeah, exactly. It harms your children's it, it future. Sets a president. People forget about this in today's world where everything's become partisan. But the ACLU cut their teeth. They, they uh, made their reputation on defending a Nazi march through a Jewish neighborhood. Uh, and this is because it's about uh, the right to assembly, the right to freedom of speech. You do not have a right to be free from offense, right? There is no... 
uh, constitutional right to a safe space. But that doesn't mean you do nothing. That doesn't mean you have no opinion. That doesn't mean you have no political power. What it does mean is that you have to recognize that everyone has the right to their own opinion, even terrible opinions. Uh, what we have to protect is the speech, is the platform, is the assembly, is the association, is the process that allows us to understand and recognize and identify when people did break the law, when they did harm others, to go to a fair trial where the jury can consider why they did what they did, what they did, and not just whether it was legal or illegal, but whether it was moral or immoral, whether it was right or whether it was wrong, and whether they are the lowest person, you know, the, the most ordinary citizen in the country, or the highest elected official hold them to the same standard of behavior, the same rule of law. Whereas today, you know, we call them uh, public officials and, and private citizens, but with the, all of the surveillance, all of the data collection, uh, people in power, commercially or governmentally, they know everything about us, and we know nothing about them. Uh, we break the smallest law, we go to jail, we get a fine, we get screwed, we can't get a job, we can't get a loan. Uh, but if they, you know, flagrantly abuse their office, their authority, uh, they get a pass. They go on the speaker's circuit. You know, it's uh, it's all uh, sunshine and rainbows for them. Uh, and the way we change these things is remembering our principles and being willing to stand and defend them. It's also instinctual for people to be partisan, and it, it's tribal. It's a tribal thing. And in this day and age, people are rapidly partisan. And the rejection of nuance is so disturbing to me. And it's so disturbing that a lot of this happens from the left now, whereas the left used to be all about freedom of speech. The ACLU is, I mean, it, it's just you, you automatically think of the liberal people when you think of the ACLU. But the ACLU, today, just for the record, is a nonpartisan organization. Yes, <laughs> but supported overwhelmingly Certainly, yeah. by, by left-wing people. Um, I mean, obviously they are nonpartisan, but but people are so partisan today that this rejection of nuance—it's it's so it's so easy for people to look at things as left versus right and ignore all of the sins of their team and concentrate on defeating the other side. And it seems to be a, a, a giant part of the problem today, so much so that people are in favor, a lot of people are in favor of deplatforming people that just simply disagree with them. And I want to talk to you about that because that seems to be a gigantic issue. Not seems to be. It is a gigantic issue with social media, whether it's with Twitter or YouTube or many things. Um, in fact, Unity 2020 is uh, something that my friend, my friend Brett Weinstein uh, is putting together this idea that we should l look across both parties for people that are reasonable and rational people and look at what we agree with rather than simply s sitting on, on partisan policy, uh, uh, on, on party lines and only voting, you know, blue across the board or red across the board. And let's look at reasonable people from both sides, whether it's Dan Crenshaw and Tulsi Gabbard or who, whoever it is that are, they, they represent different parties, but they're both reasonable people. Let's get them together and have these communications. They were banned from Twitter. <laughs> they were simply banned, banned from Twitter for simply saying, reject both Trump and Biden, look for a third choice. 
So this, this is not, there's nothing offensive about what they did. In fact, they're, they're encouraging choice. They're encouraging this idea that we don't have to be a two-party system. That, in fact, even though we have had libertarian and green parties, we kind of look at it like bullshit. It's, it's like a protest vote. If you vote green party, you know you're not going to elect that person for president. I mean, it's kind of like we tolerate it. But when someone like Ross Perot came around, it threw a monkey wrench into the gears and became very dangerous for both sides because the Republicans lost a lot of votes. And that's how Bill Clinton got into office. And George H.W. Bush did not get a second term directly because of the influence of Ross Perot. So they changed the requirements for getting into the, the debates and everything became very different and very more complicated after that. The fact that they would that Twitter would be willing to ban Unity 2020 specifically because they're calling for people to walk away from this idea that you have to either vote for Trump or Biden and trying to get mainstream acceptance of a potential third party candidate is extremely disturbing but deplatforming in general I think is extremely disturbing because it's a slippery slope if you decide that someone has views that are opposite of yours and they bother you those views bother you and you could do whatever you can to get them off of a platform it's very dangerous because someone from the right who gains power or someone from an opposing party that gains power if they get into a position of power in social media if they own a gigantic social media company like twitter or youtube and they decide in turn to go after people that agree with your ideology well, then we have a freedom of speech issue. And you're a, you're literally supporting the suppression of freedom of speech if you're supporting deplatforming people on social media. And I've always thought that the answer to someone saying something you disagree with or something someone saying something you vehemently oppose is a better argument. That's what they, it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's supposed exactly. to be you should expose the problems and what they're doing. And I'm seeing so many people, particularly on the left, that are happy when people get deplatformed and people that just are just are contrary to their perspective contrary to their ideology and it's it's i think it's very dangerous and it's too easy it's too easy to accept it's in this this goes back to what you're saying this partisan viewpoint that we have today fiercely rabidly partisan in a way that i've never seen in my life yeah, I, I think the question of deplatforming, this is one of the, the central issues of our time yeah. that's really overlooked and it's underappreciated. Uh, so many people on both sides are in favor of this uh, when it's somebody they don't like, right? Um, yes. The central issue is this. Do we want companies deciding what can and cannot be said do we want governments deciding what can and cannot be said? Um, if the answer is yes, uh, it is a very different kind of society than what we have had traditionally. I do think we need to understand uh, where this impulse came from, um, how it came to be and why it seemed reasonable. And a lot of people forget this. Uh, and it came from ISIS. Uh, if you remember the Islamic State, it was all over YouTube, they were all over Twitter, they were all over Facebook, and they were literally burning people alive in cages, they were beheading people, you know, pushing people off buildings, just horrible stuff. Um, and that raises a tough question for a lot of these companies. Now, it's very easy 
to make the argument that, all right, this is a direct call for violence. This is literally uh, supporting terrorism. Um, and as a private company, we have no obligation to let people use our platforms. Therefore, we're closing their accounts, right? We're shutting this off. We're erasing it. We can do whatever we want. It's our, our website. Don't like it? Leave. Um, constitutionally, there's no uh, freedom of speech issue uh, implicated there because the Constitution uh, restrains the federal government and the state governments uh, in, in certain circumstances. Not private companies. But uh, once that precedent had been established uh, that they would do this for ISIS, they started going, well, what about these other people? Uh, what about these things that could be construed as calls to violence? Okay, what if they're not violence at all? Uh, what if it's harassment? What if it's abuse? What if it's racism? What if it's you know criminality? What if it's drug culture? What if it's pornography? What if it's whatever? Uh, and there will always be more what ifs. And the categories of prohibited speech will constantly expand. So we need to ask ourselves, well, who is best placed to make those decisions about what can and cannot be said? Uh, traditionally, uh, the access to broadcast was limited. You had radio, you had TV. If you didn't have that, you had the soapbox on the corner, right? Uh, or the local university, uh, the coffee shop. And somebody owned those places, uh, or somebody ran those places. Uh, you know, the college president would say this person would be invited to speak, this person wouldn't be invited to speak. Um, and I, I actually think it's right and proper uh, for people to be able to protest speakers to say this person shouldn't speak uh, at our college. But I think the college itself, the institution, has to be willing to make value judgments about why they invite certain people to speak. Uh, and if that person's a very unpopular speaker, if that person is uh, representing a viewpoint that is not well supported by the college, uh, if it's not necessarily what students want to hear, uh, but the administration believes, like the faculty believes, uh, that it's something students should hear, isn't that why we have universities? We don't go to class yes. to learn, you know, necessarily, like you don't go to a literature course to read the things that you want to read, you just go home and read those yourself. Uh, you go to study a curriculum to something else. You want to benefit from the experience from the perspectives of others. The question that people have is how does this expand into the wider audience, right? What happens when you move beyond universities? What happens when you move to news broadcasts? What happens when you move to the internet? What happens when everyone everywhere can broadcast? And this is where I think things get really tricky. Um, not can people say what they want? Uh, as long as they're not advocating violence or whatever, I don't think this should be a difficult issue. Um, but this gets complicated when you th have things like YouTube's uh, next video suggestion algorithm. Because the idea of universal uh, speech, universal ability to broadcast, is exactly as you said. Well, what is the counter for this? You've got freaking Nazis on the internet. And I'm not talking like oh, whatever the guy's got a trump sticker on his truck i'm talking goose stepping you know swastika bearing actual freaking nazi um you have those people out there on the internet calling for violence calling for all these terrible things and normally the way you deal with this even in the case of something like isis you drag them onto the platform you discredit their ideas before the world because if you don't if you drive them underground if you make them you know this this faction that's you know uh, 
hanging out at uh, a radical mosque. Uh, or, you know, they're hanging out at the hardware store if they're freaking Nazis or whatever. Uh, there are uh, places where you create its own community that is sheltered from other perspectives. It's sheltered from other ideas. And that is where extremism thrives, where it cannot be challenged, uh, where it cannot be exposed uh, for what it really is. But when you've got YouTube going, oh, you like Nazi A? How about Nazi B? How about Nazi C, right? These people never get exposed to counter speech, and this is where things get tricky. Well, it also gets tricky when you decide that someone is saying something that's offensive and you remove them from the platform, and then you open the door for other things being offensive, things that maybe aren't offensive to you. The, the, the slope gets slippery, and then you have wrong speak. You have, you have newly dictated language that you have to use. You have new restrictions on ideologies, things you're not allowed to espouse. I mean, uh, Twitter will ban you for dead naming someone. They will ban you for life, meaning if you transition to be a woman and you call yourself Edwina and I call you Edward, you, I will be banned for life with no recourse. Which is madness. It's mad because I can call you fuckface and no one has a problem with it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I could call you a terrible, I could, I could call you that and there's no problem. But if I you choose a name that used to accurately represent you as a different gender, because this is some new, in, incredibly important distinction that we've decided it takes precedence over everything else, including it's it's more significant than insults, more significance than uh, demeaning of, I can call you a moron, I could demean your intellect, all those things are fine. But if I choose to call you by a name that used to accurately, accurately represent you when you were a different gender or when you identified with a different gender because of today's political climate, that is grounds for banning you for life. It shows you how incredibly slippery censorship can get. Because I would have never imagined that. If you said to me 10 years ago, well, when someone becomes a transgender person 10 years ago, 10 years ago if you said this to me, if someone becomes a transgender person, you call them by their original name. You could be banned from social media for life. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. They'll never get to that. No one's going to be that unreasonable. That's crazy. Because you could call some people so many disparaging and insulting names, but you can't say their name that isn't even insulting. De dead naming. That's what it's called. So it just shows you dead naming of today. You agree with that today. That opens up the door for all kinds of crazy shit. Five years from now, ten years from now, if we still get more and more rabidly politically polarized and we our, our, our idea of PC culture gets more and more extreme, you're, you're, you're on a greased hill. And if you decide to give up a little ground, the slide is imminent. I, I think this is like you can argue on that axis. Um, but I think incrementalism and the failures of imagination going, you know, 10 years ago, we couldn't imagine this would have been a valuable offense, uh, is the wrong way to go about it. Um, because if you go back to the founding of the country saying, you know, women should have the right to vote, black people should have the right to vote, you know, that was unimaginable. That would get you uh, equivalently deplatformed, not welcomed to the, the speaking community or whatever. Sure, but and those I'm are positive saying, and inclusive things. Right, I'm not saying. Uh, right. I'm associating these directly. I'm talking about the principle here. 
because I you can attack these things in that direction and go, oh, you know, this doesn't seem right. But remember, it's Twitter making these rules. It's YouTube making these rules. It's not a court making these rules. Um, and anybody technically today can decide who and can and can't, uh, who can and cannot speak on their platforms. The question is, uh, what should we do? What kind of culture should we promote? How should we have these conversations? And how should we make them available? And I think civility is not too much to ask people generally. As you say, you know, uh, calling people fuckface or moron or whatever is completely normal um, on the internet, and that's not really going to get you banned from anywhere. Uh, and now you have all of these companies sort of uh, contorting themselves to fit into these blocks to not uh, isolate or uh, sort of uh, anger all of these different demographics. Uh, but if we truly want to have a global broadcast, a public commons, the question I think that's more important here is not so much uh, what should and should not be banned, because that's accepting the premise of banning, is how do we create an inclusive uh, platform where everyone can talk and even strictly and harshly disagree with each other without it coming down to name-calling, without trying to dox people, without trying to uh, basically dog-whistle them or screw them or hurt them or harm them, however. Now, look, I am not above calling people bad names on the Internet. I've said terrible things. I grew up on the Internet, right? I was an asshole. Right. Uh, and we all were. And the thing is, the no, worst no. things that we say at any moment today, no. they are permanent. The Internet never forgets, right? So when you say these things, and, you know, there, there's a young audience listening right now to, to, to like, everything. Yeah, um, so and they the think language, it's cool, guys. they think it's funny, or they don't think it's cool, or they don't think it's funny, but they think they shouldn't be deplatformed for it. They, they, they're edgy, you know, they push the lines or whatever. They get that out there, and they start emulating this behavior. They start saying mean things. They start saying cruel things. I did it myself, right? Um, not in this context, but in whatever the equivalent would be, you know, 20 years ago. Um, and that there are going to be consequences for that. They're going to be judged by that, uh, whether they should or should not, whether it is right or wrong, because as you said, there's so much tribalism today. Uh, and I think we have to create positive examples. I think you're right that deplatforming is a huge issue. It is a tremendous issue, right? But we should think about what it is that we're actually uh, fighting against. And I don't think like trans issues or whatever, uh, when it comes down to basically civility, is the hill to die on. Because I think there's better arguments. Well, I, I certainly think we should encourage civility. There's no, no doubt about it. What I'm getting at is that the idea that no, you can be it. banned it, it, for life for that is it's preposterous i think civility is one of the most important things our culture could ever promote and i and i think it's very difficult to promote civility online because the anonymous aspect right. of there's no uh, accountability internet interaction right. right there's no accountability there's you, you're not getting social cues from people it's just a completely different world when you're interacting with people especially for kids you know i mean if you had given me the internet when i was 15 years old i would have said the most horrific things to people for sure and i'm sure many 15 year old kids are doing exactly that right now uh, i think the more we can encourage civility the better we all are in all aspects of our life whether it's person to person face to face or online i try very hard to only say things online that i would say to someone's face and if you uh, online now 
I do not interact with people in any way, shape, or form that's negative. I don't do it. I, do, I don't. I don't believe in it. I, I treat it the same way. If it's avoidable, I avoid it, and I, I, I think that's incredibly important. But this does bring My, up an important point, which is, I mean, what it really gets to the core of the issue failures of civility the fact that people say bad things the fact that people don't have accountability there are you know there's a whole spectrum of people out there from angels to devils right there's ordinary people and even the best of people have bad days and say terrible things for sure we're all we do need people to have some responsibility for having a thicker skin you know (laughs) look guys I've had people literally advocating my murder, right? Like that, just torture and yeah, murder, literally horrible things. Yeah, yeah, for I've seen it. Years, um, and yes. the people that I've blocked on my Twitter account are the ones who are posting about like Bitcoin scams that are like, you know, send me five Bitcoin, I'll send you five <laughs> Bitcoin back. Um, and That's hilarious. I'm, I'm not saying this is the example to emulate. Uh, what it is, though, is we have to recognize. That some people aren't worth engaging. Some people aren't worth listening to. Um, it's a lesson. Right. But that doesn't mean yeah. necessarily that you take their voice entirely. Yes, I, I, I most certainly agree with that, uh, in, in terms, in, particularly in terms of deplatforming. My question to you about this is, and I've raised this question with many people, and I really haven't got a satisfactory answer. Do you think that things that get so huge, like Twitter... Uh, or Facebook, or even YouTube, do they become a basic right? Is it like the utilities? Is it like electricity and water? Is like the ability to communicate online seems to me a core aspect of what it means to be a human being with a voice in 2020. And I don't think it's as simple as removing someone from Twitter is simply a company uh, exercising their right to have whatever they want on their platform. I think when it gets as big as Twitter is, I think we've passed into a new realm, and I think we need to acknowledge that, whether it's Twitter or YouTube or Facebook or what have you. I mean, And I think it should be very difficult to remove someone from those platforms, and I think it should probably involve some sort of a trial. I mean, this is much, uh, this is a really, really tough issue. It, it's much larger than just deplatforming, uh, because what we're really talking about is the Internet as a public utility, right? The Internet yes. is water and power, um, as opposed and to... And its ability to shape culture. Right, right. Um, when you talk about something like, uh, you know, Twitter and the size of it, it when the president is basically directing uh, policy from Twitter... Uh, it's clear something and threatening countries, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, th- that is uh, our laws were not designed with that in mind, uh, and unfortunately, we have a legislature that's just fundamentally broken. Uh, this gets back to the uh, the electoral system which you talked about earlier. You know, most countries in the world uh, have a wide swath of parties. They're not this two party binary system where it's just two groups. Uh, largely neocorporatist groups that are just handing power back and forth. The president changes, uh, but the actual lawmakers, the actual structure behind the president, the advisors, uh, are largely from the same cohorts. Um, we, we, we don't have that uh, legislative, we don't have that governmental structure that allows us to adapt in a way that truly represents, I, I think, the broadest spectrum of public opinion 
in a way uh, that allows us to respond to changes in technology in a meaningful way, which is what's left us stranded today where these companies are, are sort of deciding things for themselves. It's because there is a vacuum uh, of legislation. Uh, now there's a question of do we want legislation? People on different spectrums from authoritarian to libertarian here will go, we want lots of legislation, we want no legislation. Um, but there is a push and there has been a push in Congress for years, actually since the 90s, uh, with the Communications Decency Act and the, the first crypto war, uh, where the government was treating um, the ability to encrypt your communications, to, to make them secret uh, or private as you communicate with people online. They were treating that as a weapon and saying you couldn't export this code without getting a license from the government and, and all kinds of craziness. Um, but the Communications Decency Act, the idea that there would be obscenity regulations, the some years ago, you may remember a scandal involving Backpage, which was like a variant of Craigslist that had a lot of prostitution ads on it. Um, government has been trying more and more uh, to say these kind of things can be done on the Internet, these kind of things can be said on the Internet, these kind of things can't be said on the Internet. Uh, and they have been doing this largely under the guise, I would argue, of the Commerce Clause, right? The federal government, where do they get the constitutional authority to regulate what we say and do businesses wherever? Well, they go, well, the internet is global, it's international, therefore it's interstate commerce, and so we're gonna regulate this as if you're you know, shipping bushels of corn from Iowa to Florida. Um, but it's, it's a little bit different than that. And I think uh, what we need to recognize is that the internet is a utility and people, uh, individuals uh, and corporate entities um, should be criminally liable for the things that they do online. Uh, that means if they have caused enough harm uh, that you're willing to put them in prison, they've stolen from someone, they have uh, destroyed some piece of infrastructure, they have uh, caused harm to someone, uh, you know, somebody died or they plotted a murder or whatever, you take them through the courts. You try them on this. The jury considers what they did. They consider why they did it. They consider the evidence. Uh, and then you, you uh, let the trial system, the traditional system that we've had for thousands of years, uh, work this kind of stuff out, or at least hundreds of years. Um, but when you get the government and you get officials in Congress, you get officials at, you know, whatever the local department of this country or that country, you know, Russia's got a telecommunications censorship bureau, China's got one, France, Germany, the United States, all of these guys have different regulatory authorities, whether it's the FCC in the United States or Roskomnadzor in Russia. Um, and you cannot substitute their judgment for the judgment of a jury, for the judgment of the people and the public broadly. Um, and I think it's dangerous that we are trying to uh, have the government pick winners and losers when whether you win or lose determines whether or not you can engage uh, with the world, um, whether you can have a public presence uh, on the internet, because the internet is real life today. Yeah, it is. And uh, could it be that the option would be to extend the First Amendment rights to the internet in general and to, if you want to run a social media platform, you know, other than what we're talking about, putting people in danger, doxing people, threatening people's lives, doing things that can cause direct harm to people. But the ability to express yourself in controversial ways, should, 
shouldn't we extend First Amendment protections to social media platforms? I, I think this is a, a much more complicated question than it appears because you get into the whole thing of obligation of service. There is, uh, like, there was a cause celebrate on the right, actually, that would seem like uh, a similar issue. Well, remember there was the cake shop somewhere where they didn't want to serve yes. like a same-sex marriage thing. Uh, and yes. again, this gets back to civility. Um, but some people, are they have a very strong fundamental uh, belief here that these people shouldn't be able to do this, that, or the other. And if you impose that uh, on them, that requirement on them, they've got to serve you know, whatever their uh, business is to these people that they don't like or that they don't agree with. There's a compulsion of service there. Uh, you start doing this with the internet, uh, and then there's a completely different com- country. You know, let's say there's a, a website in Belgium that's now bound by American laws. That's bound by this. Uh, Twitter can't ban this person, even though uh, they're against them. It seems like. But isn't that a different argument, though? Because we're, well, all these companies we're talking about—Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube—are all based in America. Now, I agree imposing American well, First Amendment rights on a country forever, from... Particularly if the U.S. starts changing laws. The, this is the interesting thing about Internet companies. Is they can right, and would that be their loophole? Want. Yeah. Would that be their loophole to get out of that, just sell well, it to China? Yeah, right, but I mean, it, it's... it's the, the More fundamentally, um, we have to recognize either as a society, we can compel people to standards of civility, or we can't. And we need to decide... Uh, how we handle that, because that's what all of these tie around, right? Um, and I think we have forgotten uh, in many ways, just we're not teaching people the golden rule well enough, because we are all angry. We are all in competition. Yes. And the funny thing is, uh, the guy on the right, who's poor and living in a trailer, uh, is not much different than, you know, the hippie on the left, who's scrounging out of dumpsters, you know, uh, and, and raising their black flag to go to a protest. They act like they could not be more different, but their economic circumstances could not be more similar. And the reality is it's, you know, the, the government, uh, the, the lawmakers and the business owners that are setting them at odds. Uh, and we are all getting yeah. lost in our own uh, ideological differences. Uh, and losing yes. sight of the things that actually tie us together and that if we work together, maybe we could change in a more meaningful way. And the more people you meet, the more people you talk to, the more you realize how malleable people really are and about how so many of these ideological perspectives that they, they so rapidly subscribe to, they've adopted because it allows them to be accepted by their community by whatever neighborhood they're in, whatever group of people they hang out with, and they choose to adopt these uh, these ideas about how the world is. And so many of those people just don't experience people that are, are different from them. I mean, that, that is the case with racism. That's the case with homophobia. That's the case with many of the issues that people have with other folks, is that they just don't know people from those other groups, and they haven't experienced, you know, they haven't walked a mile in their shoes, as it were. Um, I, I think civility should be encouraged as much as possible. Also, though, I'm a comedian, and I, I, t- I talk a lot of shit. And that's in, in the sense of humor. Like, you can mis- and, and it's been done against me many times where they've taken things I've said in jest and put them in quotes completely out of context, and it looks horrible because... 
that's not what it that's not the way it was intended and it was intended in humor now if you do have laws that in, not just encourage civility but uh mandate civility you're gonna have a real problem with humor because right, you're sure, basically gonna yeah. cut, cut the ankles out of comedy um not that i'm saying that all humor has to be mean and vicious it doesn't but some of the best is well it's also and, about saying uh, things that can't be said you know Yes, yeah, saying things that can't be said. Um, I, I think there's a there's a giant problem with uh, online censorship today, I, and, I, and I and I think it's one of the biggest problems of our era. And I do yes. think it is because it, there is a massive slippery slope. Um, and I do uh, agree with you about the cake people. You know that that was a a, a big issue that caused celeb of the right of these people. They should have the right. A lot of people felt to not make a oh, cake oh, for cake, someone yeah. who is doing who is doing something they think is immoral, right? Being uh, involved a in a gay relationship. Couple. But there's also the problem of sensationalizing these things because the people that did find those people that didn't want to make those cakes, they went to a bunch of people that agreed to make the cake first. They went and tried to find someone who didn't want to make that cake, oh, and so then they, they turned it into a big story. Yeah. Now, okay. even though I, I yeah. just think, I mean, I think you should make a cake for gay people because there's nothing wrong with being gay. But I think the people that made that, that decision to not make that, I feel bad for them. Yeah. I feel bad that they're they're bigoted in that way, and that, right. that it's, it's such a foolish thing to care right. who someone is in love with, whether right. it's the same sex or an opposite sex. But also. I think it's weird that someone wants to go around and try to find someone who won't make a cake for them. Who wants to go from cake place yeah. to cake place to cake place until I got, aha, I found a bigot. Yeah, like, and, and then make a big deal out of it. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're searching for victimhood. I mean, there's an argument that that's, uh, I mean, that, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that's activism. Uh, they're searching for injustice. Agreed. They perceive, Agreed. Right? Yeah. And this I is, agree. Yeah. This is the thing. Like, what is right and wrong? This is this is what people forget uh, is changing constantly when we're talking about public opinion because public opinion is changing constantly. Uh, and this is why doing right change. by people, it's so sad that we've lost sight of this uh, basic impulse to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Decency uh, yes. is what because God wants when you to talk do, about and the internet, when you talk change. about deplatforming, when you talk about humor, as you said, you know, people are going back people and they're looking at your jokes, they're putting them in quotes, it's a different context. You're tied up in wires. Uh, something you said uh, looks bad. There's, there's things that uh, you've said, uh, things that I've said, real, things that the person listening right now uh, have said that they believed that they meant that they said 10 years ago, that they said one year ago, that they said three weeks ago, that they no longer believe, that they've abandoned, that they've been persuaded otherwise, that they've changed their mind on. And this was one of the central themes in, in the book, Permanent Record, um, is we are no longer allowed to forget our worst mistakes, right? They're there, they haunt us, they're used against us, they're weaponized. Uh, and this society has become aware of this, and activists on all sides have become aware of this. Uh, immediately they use this uh, to try to attack people on the other side of any issue that they don't like, to, to go after their credibility, to go after their character. Uh, and what we are losing in that conflict, uh, and this is a rational strategy on the part of both sides, 
in the moment because they realize there is a real political advantage to be gained. You can get people canceled uh, very easily nowadays. But the, the thing is, when we make everyone, we pin everyone to their worst moment, when we do away with the concept of forgiveness, we, we do away with the potential for growth, for change, for persuasion. And this gets back to those, those rat holes of uh, extremism on, on uh, YouTube, on Twitter, on everywhere else, where they start self-reinforcing uh, and eventually reaching the bottom of the hole at the worst of the worst with everybody else who's been canceled too. And part of that is because they can't climb out or they think they can't climb out. Uh, and there's a question, how do we resolve that? One of the nice things about the, the pre-internet society was as bad as you were, as ignorant, as uh, racist, as exploitative, as whatever you don't like, right? As that person, that character was, they could find something new. They could read a book. They could meet someone. They could change their mind. And even if nobody in their town would ever forgive them, rightly in some cases, because they had done something truly terrible, something truly unforgivable, they could leave. They could move to a different town. They could move to a different state. And that history would not follow them. They could reinvent themselves. And they could become someone truly, honestly better instead of being uh, married to their prior ignorance. That is a very important thing because we all are in a constant state of growth. If you're not, you're, you're really making some fundamental errors with your life. We're all in this constant state of uh, accepting and acquiring new information, gaining new perspectives, learning from our mistakes. And if, unless you're Dr. Manhattan, unless you're some person who's not making any mistakes and you just have this all-knowing vision of the world, you're a finished product, like, please, if you are, share that with everybody else. But most of us are not. Most of us are in this weird state of being a human being on Earth where everyone is trying to figure it out in this incredibly imperfect world, incredibly imperfect society. The, the, everything from the, the structure, the economic structure to the societal structure, everything, down to the very last things everything's imperfect you can boil and on it the idea and should be that we're all hard. communicating to try to grow together and we that we're learning that. together and it's one of the more interesting things about interacting with people online is that you can get different perspectives and if you can let go of your ego and if you can let go of your preconceived notions you can learn things about the way other people see and feel and think about the world that could change and enhance your own ideas and i think that that's it's important that we not just accept the fact that people are growing and getting better and improving, but that we encourage it. I, we, yeah. we encourage it and we reward it. And I, I think that's one of the interesting things that we're, we're struggling with. I mean, you see this in the context of police violence. You, you see this uh, in the context of mass surveillance. Uh, you see this in the context of cancel culture. You see this everywhere. Um, one of the interesting things about this surveillance machine that has been built around us, the, the sort of architecture of repression, the turnkey tyranny, as I describe it. Um, so much is known about every person, uh, regardless of how innocent or how guilty they are. 
it's all in there. You know, the files are waiting to be accessed. The, the data just needs to be collated. It, it's, it's just waiting to be requested and analyzed and used. What this means, like there, there's this old idea of the panopticon, right? Um, which is you, you create a, a prison that is circular. And in the middle of it, there's this great tower, right, that, that rises way up. And at the very top of the tower, uh, there's a, a mirrored glass room uh, that the warden sits in. And no prisoner knows where the warden is looking because the warden can see out, but they can't see in. And so everyone believes that they are watched. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that no one will misbehave because they're all afraid uh, that they'll be retaliated against for breaking the rules or whatever. But what we have seen as this surveillance machine has been built is we all realize uh, intuitively, intuitively, innately, inherently in ourselves, even if we don't recognize it, even if we don't speak to it, uh, we witness it in the news every night, uh, there are records of wrongdoing, criminality in government at the highest and lowest levels of our government, uh, corporations and, uh, you know, prominent Uh, figures in society breaking the rules ordinary people jaywalking littering you know uh polluting small scale petty stuff Mm -hmm. all of that somewhere there is a record of Mm -hmm. but in almost all cases it's not punished what has happened is we have broken the chain of accountability between knowledge of wrongdoing uh and consequence for wrongdoing and this happened without a vote it happened without our participation we weren't asked uh, whether this was okay but i think in some way uh, that is beginning to change the moral character of people and what we need to do starting with the top rather than the bottom because china is trying to do the reverse they're going all right well there's a simple solution to this let's just start screwing everybody who breaks the rules instantly and immediately you know, you got a social credit score, you, you uh, protested, so you're going off to a camp, you know, whatever. Um, but imagine uh, what it would mean if we saw people where now any official, the minute they are guilty of the slightest infraction, uh, immediately is exposed in the press, they go on trial, they go on all this stuff, they're, they're ruined, they're disgraced. Um, but it turns out every other member of Congress is going to court in the same week because everybody's in violation of something somewhere. Uh, we all have some measure of guilt, uh, large or small, even if we're completely innocent That's because you know, our legal code is so complex. There's no way you can make it through a week without breaking some kind of rule about you can't wear a green hat on Tuesday. Um, but if this happened... If there was accountability for infractions of the rules any time an infraction of the rules was witnessed, the laws would change instantly to enshrine the right to privacy because the people in power wouldn't want to lose their position of power. Uh, They would not want to lose this position. And suddenly, when they have skin in the game, they would realize, oh, everybody deserves this. Um, And I I think there's just something interesting to that. I haven't thought this out all all the way fully, so this could be, you know, like... (laughs) Give, give me some slack here. But I think this is really what has changed. Um, we have built a panopticon, but what sits at the top of it is a computer. Uh, that computer 
witnesses everything we do. In reality, it's a distribution of computers. Uh, they're owned by many people and they answer to many people. Um, but it does not yet judge us for us, judge us for it. And what is happening is the audience, society, the people have realized that they can see through this computer. They can see through the panopticon from a certain angle, a certain degree, in a certain direction at any given time. The cops that have been, you know, monitoring all of us for years, right, they've got surveillance and drones and stuff that they couldn't imagine like generations prior. My whole life. But now every person on the street has a smartphone with a camera too. And the cops are being witnessed for the first time. And mm. now people are trying to impose upon them the same judgment that has classically been imposed upon.